I want to ask you to look again at your worship guide this morning. And I want to make sure that you notice you have a picture of Jen there, I believe. Um, friends, this one's a keeper. Don't leave it under your seat. Okay, Take it home, put it on the fridge, put it on the mirror, wherever, wherever you'll see it to be reminded to pray for her. Um, she is in prison, at least until her, the first week of December when her trial date is. And unless God intervenes, the expectations are that she will be in prison longer. And I, I cannot imagine what an African prison is like. Um, so pray. Pray for her protection. Pray for her encouragement. Pray for um, her to be useful in God's hands. Pray for her rescue. Um, but please, please, don't leave that one laying around. Take it home. And, and let's pray for our sister. Her suffering is our suffering. And we want to be united with her um, these days, these hard, hard, hard days for her and for her, her physical family. So as we open up the scriptures, would you pray with me again about that and about what we're about to receive? Lord, we, we now experience a sacred privilege. We hear your words given to us for the protection of our souls and for the transformation of our character and for guidance in life and for us to know you, for us to know what you are like, for us to know the God we worship and serve. We pray that all those things would happen now. We pray too that you'd bring encouragement to our sister Jen right now, that as our prayers come to you, your grace would be poured out on her. Father, bring encouragement and hope to her today. Bring a special conversation that encourages a friend. Uh, perhaps even her mom will arrive. Lord, I, I pray that you would be, bring kindness to her that strengthens her hope that is in you by your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago when I last taught, we talked about the fact that fathers, um, sons rather, look, look a lot like their fathers. That, that, that happens a lot of times. And so I wanted to give you some visual evidence of that, and these are just some pictures from the internet, dads and sons, um, and uh, they, are, they are doppelgangers for each other. It's really funny. Uh, just a really clear, clear family resemblance in some of these pictures that is striking. Um, you can see it in their eyes and in their smile, and uh, just really, really cool. And for better or worse, the son looks like the father, right? Um, there's one you might know, father and son. Uh, here's another one you might know. Um, and then, of course, uh, the most famous one right there, father and son look alike, family resemblance. Um, you know, as we saw two weeks ago, so too, Jesus as God's son uniquely shows us his father. Jesus said so himself <clears throat> in interaction with one of his disciples named Philip, and he said in John 14, Philip, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now these are stunning claims when Jesus says, if you had known me, you've known God. You've known me, you've known my Father. From now on, you know him, and you have seen him. Jesus is claiming more than just what we saw in those pictures, that someone is the the spitting image of their Father. He is claiming so much more than that. It's closer to our saying when we'd say, "He's he's a chip off the old block. That is, he acts like his Father. It's not about appearance. It's what he does, only far, far more than what we mean when we say that. The book of Hebrews puts it, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. He and the Father, Jesus would say elsewhere, are one. Here he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus here is making a divine claim. He is claiming to be God. And as a result of that, in a way like no one else who has ever lived could do, Jesus shows us what God the Father is like. So you want to know what the Father is like? Then look to His Son. Listen to His Son. Study His Son. Believe His Son. Follow His Son. Because the Son came to show you the Father. He does this revealing work, according to this passage in John 14, through both his words and his works. And two weeks ago, we considered how his words, especially in his parables, reveal the Father to us, reveal him specifically to be a generous Father. And today, we want to consider how his works reveal the same truth about God, that we're going to look at a handful of Jesus' miracles and see how they reveal the radical generosity of his Father. So we'll skip around again for a variety of different passages all in the Gospels. So if you want to open up your Bibles to John chapter 2, um, we'll, we'll, we'll begin there. It says, um, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Jesus made the guest list. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And they filled them up. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out. And take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So this is Jesus' first miracle, right? It's always curious to me. 
If, if you were Jesus and you were going to do an opening miracle that would launch your career as a miracle worker, what would you do? You know, I'm thinking, um, you know, heal somebody, cast out a couple of demons, maybe raise somebody from the dead, you know, bang, launch it. Not provide drinks at a wedding, miraculously. Why, why would Jesus do this miracle? And what it turns out to be is it's a way that Jesus is showing us who he is. John calls it the first of his signs. Okay? It's a pointer that points to Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, one who takes water that had been set aside for ritual washings and transforms it into a symbol of the lavish reign and rule of the Messiah. You know, if you, if you look in the Old Testament, when the prophets talked about having lots of wine, that was a sign of God's reign. Prophet Amos says, Behold, the days are coming. This is chapter 9, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. See, this miracle of turning water to wine points to a generous God who will one day bring about a lavishly generous reign of the Messiah in a new heaven and on a new earth. And in, in this sign that we're looking at, the amount matters. Think about the amount with me back in our passage in verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, okay? So, let's do the math. Yet six jars, they hold an average of 25 gallons of water, or, or, and now it's wine, so you get six times 25, you carry the one, 150 gallons of fine wine. What kind of wedding reception needs 150 gallons of wine? Okay? This is borderline irresponsible to make this much wine for a wedding, right? Um, and it's unveiled at the end of the wedding, no less. The kind of reception that needs that kind of wine is a, is a reception that points to the Messiah, the reign of the Messiah in the kingdom of God, where the languish is lavish. Listen to another prophet predicting the reign of the Messiah in Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 3. In that day, the day when the Messiah reigns, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. See, this wedding miracle is a sign that points to a God who's not just 150 gallons of wine kind of generous, but mountains dripping with wine kind of generous. Okay? Now, if you are a seminary student and you are under the vow, this is a good thing, trust me. This is, lots of wine is a good thing in the imagery that's being used here. I know that's a stretch for you at this point in time. It's a sign. It's a pointer to the future reign of our God, who is so very lavishly generous. 
And the story ends this way. And his disciples believed in him. And so should we. We should believe that he is the Messiah, the one sent from God to rescue us from our sin. And we should believe him to be a lavishly generous God. Look at a second of Jesus' miracles that portrays God this way. This is in Matthew, Matthew 14. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, it says, starting in verse 13 of Matthew 14. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from them in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So again, in this story, in this miracle, Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples. Jesus is showing them who he is, showing showing himself to be, in this case, the Lord of creation who cares for the needy. And he is showing his disciples that if they follow him, they can trust him to provide for them to care for them. And if they trust him, he is going to use them in ways that they cannot imagine. He's also showing them who the God is that they worship. And so he looks up and he he prays and blesses the food to to the Father because the Son here is doing the work of the Father. As always in these miracles, the Father and the Son are in cahoots together. The Son is doing the Father's works, and 5,000 are fed, which is five loaves and two fish. Actually, Matthew tells us very specifically that it was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So the whole crowd might have totaled 15 to 20,000, by some estimates, were fed on this day, were satisfied on this day. And if that's not enough, there are leftovers, okay? He overfeeds the crowds. More than 15,000 can eat. Each of the disciples picks up a basketful of leftovers. John tells us that these um, five loaves and two fish, it was just one little boy's lunch. What kind of God takes a little boy's lunch and overfeeds 15,000 people? That's our God. He's that generous. And he doesn't just do it once. Turn the page, of just one page of your Bible, turn the page to Matthew 15, starting in verse 32. He does it again. Look at this. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. This is one of the great deja vu experiences for the disciples, I'm sure, right? 
I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And the hair is starting to stand up on the back of their neck. And they're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, here we go again, right? And directing the crowd to sit down on the, on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate, they all ate, and were satisfied, and they took seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, 4,000 men besides women and children, so what, maybe 10,000 people are fed at this luncheon, miraculously? from seven loaves and a few small fish, and again, seven baskets full of leftovers after feeding 10,000 people. It's as though it's not enough for Jesus just to feed them all. There has to be more. There has to be more left over. Seven basketfuls of leftovers from just those seven loaves at the beginning. And the disciples are learning that God is generous and that if they give Him all they have, He can be trusted to provide for them and to use them in ways that are beyond their wildest dreams. 150 gallon of wine, food for thousands with leftovers. Our God is an over-the-top generous God. Look at another miracle with me. This is in Luke, Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, uh, starting in verse 1, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, uh, we know him as Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So this is a miraculous story, right? A pretty curious story. You've got professional fishermen who have been fishing all night and caught nothing, right? Absolutely nothing after an entire night's work. And I'm sure they were exhausted. And all of a sudden, um, this preacher gets into one of their boats and he starts preaching all day. And when he's done preaching, he gives them instructions on how to fish. And the astonishing thing is that they listen to him. This may be a bigger miracle than the catch of fish that resulted, right? Somebody listened to the preacher and did what he said. So this is, we're on miraculous ground here, um, what's happening. Now, though I'm no fisherman, 
Uh, I'm told that this is an unlikely set of directions to go out into the deep water to fish where the lake is probably the sunniest, right? I know that whenever I go out in my kayak on the lake, um, there are no fishermen out in the middle. They're all along the side, in the coves, under the trees, in the shadows, catching. That's where their fish finders are registering all the stuff. Jesus tells them to go do the opposite of all that. And, um, and they do it. Why would they do it? Why would they follow his, destruction, his instructions? Um, well, it's not their first encounter with Jesus. They've had other little interactions with him prior to this. And Simon Peter had just spent the better part of the day with Jesus in his boat with him, listening to him teach the crowds. And listening to Jesus teach has clearly made him want to trust him and obey him. And the result is spectacular, nothing short of spectacular. Not just a couple of fish, not just a good day's catch, but so many that they need a second boat to carry them, and the weight of the catch nearly sinks both of their boats. Why such a lavish catch? I think it foreshadowed what God would do when they would become fishers of men. There are many, many We know now untold millions who will come to Christ through their message. Revelation describes it beautifully. Christ, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, this huge huge catch reminded them of what God was going to do through them. Not, in, not with fish, but with, with men. Men and women and boys and girls. This huge catch also helped them leave everything and follow. This was an over-the-top generous God. He could provide for them when they could not. He could be trusted. He would care for them. And again, just like the miraculous feedings and those generous leftover stories, um, this didn't happen just once. It happened again after Jesus' resurrection. So at the very back end of John's gospel, now in John chapter 21, we read kind of a do-over of the same miracle. After the resurrection, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord, you think, right? And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So again, it's like a do-over. Same miracle, same setting. And you hope that about halfway through, the disciples are starting to connect the dots. 
You can imagine them seeing, let's see here, uh, we've been fishing all night. We got nothing. We got absolutely nothing. And now we got a guy telling us to lower our nets, and we catch a boatload of fish. Ooh, 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 I know who it is. I know this. I've done this before. And you can just see the disciples figuring it out, and they go, it's the Lord. And Peter beautifully dives in. Clearly, Jesus is using the same miracle again to reveal to the disciples who he is. He is risen. He is the generous God who meets their needs and so much more. The generous God who does what they cannot even in their area of greatest expertise. You have all these miracles, amazing miracles, and then interspersed between them, you have these little short, almost one-sentence summary statements that are easy to miss. They're all throughout the Gospels. They go like this, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Every disease, every affliction. You know, wouldn't just an occasional healing have been sufficient? Apparently not. not. Not for this God. Matthew 14, when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Everyone who touched his garment were made well. Not just one guy. It would have been pretty spectacular if just one guy would have touched his garment and gotten well. But everyone, every person who touched just the fringe of his garment was healed. See, the occasional random healing isn't enough. This God wants to heal them all. He's powerful like that. He's caring like that. He's generous like that with his miracles. And one day we'll experience it all fully. If you still have doubts about the generosity of our God, the great convincer to me is the language of generosity that surrounds the giving of Christ and Him giving Himself on the cross. The cross, too, is a gift from a generous God. And it's seen as the generous Father. The generosity of the Father is seen there in statements like this from 2 Corinthians where Paul writes, Thanks be to God, he writes of Christ, for his inexpressible gift. He says again in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Famously in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This father is so generous that he would gift to us his only son to die on the cross to bear the sins of the world of sinners and outcasts like us. Without question, this is a generous father. But the language of generous giving also applies to the son who bears the cross. In Mark 10, Jesus would say, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. In Galatians, Paul writes this way, he says, grace to you, 
peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Son is so generous that he would give his very life for us. This is a generous son, our generous brother, our generous friend, our generous Savior, our generous God, without question. I mean, if, if we didn't have all the miracle stories, if we didn't have all the parables, if all we had was the gospel story of the generous love of God for us in the cross and the resurrection, our God's loving generosity would be established beyond question, wouldn't it? And yet we get to hear story after story after story of over-the-top miracles that Jesus performed, of lavish generosity in healings and provision of daily bread. And as we hear these stories, it is intended that it should make us say, we can trust Him. He will care for us. He is that good. He is that generous. And we should say, I will trust Him. I don't have to be a hoarder. I don't have to be tight-fisted. Even when I am in need, even then I can follow his example. Even then I can trust him and be generous like him to those who are in greater need than me. See, seeing and believing and trusting in the generosity of God is what frees us to be generous. And Jesus urged his followers to live that way. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. I love the translation that says, freely you have received, freely give. Pass it on. As I was uh, wrestling with all this and thinking about all this, I ran across this super encouraging, challenging, beautiful example of the generous life that Jesus is inviting us into. I'd like you to watch the screen and, and watch it with me if you would. Bufai Tom. A handful of rice. I don't know if you caught the statistics and did the math there. They, they give $13 million a year, which is extraordinarily generous. And of that 12%, about a million and a half dollars comes from this handful of rice offering that they do amongst the poorest of the poor in India. You know, last week, uh, Daniel, when he taught us, he commended us for our generosity. And I, in a sense, Daniel was so very right to do so. But when I watch the church around the world give, I feel like we barely have our training wheels on. Um, I don't know if you caught that expression. As long as we have something to eat each day, we have something to give to God every day. Um, I think of this Journey of Faith capital campaign that we're about to wrap up in the next couple of years as our training wheels. We are training our hearts to be generous so that in three years, Lord willing, when we are debt-free, we will not keep this handful of rice that we are offering today for ourselves, but instead we will gladly continue to be lavishly generous to kingdom work. And so today we're going to close our service by making our journey of faith capital commitments, campaign commitments for the coming year. They will start, will start in January and run throughout the year, these gifts. Um, they pay for our entire mortgage. No other funds are used towards that end. So what we've done today is structured this time so that it will reflect for us more than just a mortgage payment, 
We want it truly to be an offering of worship to the Lord. And so when you came in, you should have received a commitment card. And what we'd like to do, the worship team is going to come and lead us in a song of reflection. And I just want you to remain seated and pray and discern from the Lord during this time what it is that He might have you, what, what size your handful of rice might be to help us in this need that our church has. Um, so during this first song, prayerfully fill that card out. If you haven't already, you may reevaluate if you've already filled it out before the Lord. Um, and pray that this would be a token of your willingness, a greater willingness to give freely as you have been given freely by our ever so generous God. And pray that we would learn to be generous with our handful of rice and not keep it for ourselves in fear. And then after that first song, um, I have something, uh, a thought or two I'm going to share with you. And then during this, the closing song, we'll actually come to the front. We'll stand and sing and come to the front and offer our commitments to the Lord. You see the first service folks did it here on the table during the second song that we'll sing. So let me pray for us. And let's just send it the rest of this time through this first song in prayerful reflection before the Lord. Father, be kind to us now and free us from fear. You are our generous and good Father. We can trust you. And Lord, I pray that that freedom will help us to be ever increasingly generous people um, to the needs of your church and to needs of those around us. So Lord, now... Um, Speak to us, shape our hearts, give us trust and faith in you. This week I ran across a poem uh, turned into an old hymn written by a lady named Annie Flint. And as best I can tell from her story, Annie was twice orphaned and wheelchair-bound when she wrote these lyrics. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He, he sends more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, He adds His mercy. To multiplied trials, His multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that your need shall exceed His provision. Our God ever yearns His resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing. The Father, both you and your load, will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary, known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives, and he gives, and he gives again. Amen. You know, uh, this week, a band of our leaders already turned in their pledges, and uh, they've given nearly a third of what we need to stay on pace to be debt-free in three years. I hope that encourages you, and by our example, we're inviting you to join us, okay? Trust God. Bring your handful of rice and, uh, and join us in worshiping him. And so we're going to stand and sing this closing song. And during that time, I invite you to bring your pledges for the coming year down. Leave them on the table here. If you want to linger and pray a bit down front, you're welcome to do that. But let's, 
Let's stand. Let's worship God in our offering and with our voices.